great episode of the conversation coming up for you guys where we're gonna tackle what Joe Biden can actually do. And then we'll find out if he does it. <laughs> and we got a little bit of a, of a dying mule that we wanna talk about. Now, joining me is two wonderful reverends, living legend Reverend William Barber, president of Repairs of the Breach and co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign. And Reverend Liz Theo Harris from the Cairo Center and also co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign. Uh, Reverends, great to have you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Glad to be here today. Yeah, absolutely. So you got a 14-point plan that I want to get to in a minute about Joe Biden and what he can do. And I want to take some time with that because I think it's very important, and so that we figure out how to push him and which direction to push him in. But first, let's talk about that aforementioned dying mule. So. Donald Trump uh, still kicking and screaming all the way up to to, uh, to Tuesday, where he's saying he might not leave. Uh, he's talking to the generals uh, or threatening to talk to the generals about martial law, etc. Uh, Reverend Barber, you wrote an op-ed about the Southern strategy, and and I loved it. And this, I've actually written about this already in my book. It hasn't come out yet, but. You made a point that not very many people make, which is Donald Trump is not an aberration. He's the natural conclusion of the Southern strategy. So for folks that don't know what the Southern strategy is, can you explain that real quick and and how it led to Donald Trump? Well, to think about the Southern strategy, you have to think about the 1964, 65, 66, 67, 68, when there was a desire, particularly by Southern Democrats, extremists like Strom Thurmond, to figure out how do we hold on to the South? Because the South had voted for, in some measure, for Lyndon Baines Johnson and and John Kennedy. And and of course, we know what ended up happening because the movement could push them. And so the Southern strategy said, if we can control these 13 Southern states from Maryland over to Texas, and we can split the country directly, what they call positive polarization, we can use racialized code words to make the Democratic Party be the party of black folk, the Republican Party be the party of white people. If we can use the anger that people had over the civil rights movement and turn it into political power, we can control pretty much the presidents in the United States Senate. Because if we control those 13 southern states, we control almost 170 electoral votes before one vote was counted. And something like 31% of the United States House of Representatives, 26 members of the United States Senate, which means they only needed 25 from the other 37 states to control the US Senate and only 20% of the House votes from the rest of the 37 states. And it worked, I mean, in a large measure. Democrats ran from the South, Republicans ran to the South. Democrats tried to create a blue wall through the Rust Belt. Democrats built up a real wall in the Southern strategy. Uh, and it worked. And and what has them scared, I'll close here, is that in 2008, with the election of President Obama, when he won Virginia, North Carolina, and Florida, that scared the Jesus out of them because it broke that those states. And ever since then, there's been an all-out attempt ever since the Shelby decision in 2013 to engage in racist voter suppression because right now, uh, in many of those southern states, if just something between two and twelve percent, two and nineteen percent of poor and low wealth voters were to vote black and white and brown together, they could fundamentally shift who holds the Senate and who holds the presidency. 
So Reverend Barber, I remember I had Pat Buchanan on my show on MSNBC about 10 years ago. And I asked him about the Southern strategy because he was part of Nixon's team. He wrote the memo. Yeah, yeah. And I said, so Pat, you know, you guys went for, you know, basically the racist vote. And, and but now it looks like time's running out. And he said, yeah, we had a good 40 year run. He just said it. And so, and then unfortunately, turns out they had four more years in them. And and now I think what's driving them to the absolute brink is that they lost Georgia. And so it's one thing to lose Virginia, you still got some sort of prayer that you could hang on. But if you lose Georgia, and 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 Reverend Barber, I remember you talking about North Carolina and Georgia before the election, saying, yep. you know, the same exact thing you just said here, you said before the election right here, right? And and it turns out they lost one of them, and that's why he's not leaving. And I people need to understand it, this is a natural extension. They have this the the conservatives in the South have never wanted democracy. They literally rebelled against America because they didn't want everybody to have freedom. They hated freedom. They they want, they want democracy when it comes to. Extremist white views, and when it comes to black and brown people, they don't want democracy. But again, I would say that they are afraid, they are scared because they said they lost North Carolina in 208. They would have lost the Senate race in North Carolina, but the senator that was running, you know, got had a a um, uh, uh, infidelity issue that hurt him. They lose Georgia. They may lose two Senate seats in Georgia. But the other thing we have thought they, that they were so close to losing. Mississippi, black man runs and gets almost within two percentage points. Uh, in South Carolina, the same thing. And what they know is a lot of the reasons those persons didn't win is because still Democrats, you know, the National Democrats didn't really push in Mississippi and in South Carolina. Once people really commit to organizing in those states, those states are not red states, they're unorganized states. And if you really push them on poor and low wealth people, that's gonna cause major transformation. It was um, Cornell Belcher just wrote a piece looking at the data and said the Southern strategy is over. If in fact organizing and intentional pulling together people happen, Dr. King's dream comes true. He said in 1965, the end of the Selma to Montgomery March. He said, black and white people coming together have the power to create the beloved community and the political base to do it. Now, if you add Latinos and, and, and indigenous people, that's really here right now. It's, it's here. They, they, they knew, I'll close here, Pat Buchanan was right. They told Nixon, if we do this, we can control the South for 40 years. The 40th year was, was in um, 1968, or the 2008, that was the 40th year. They've been given another 10 years because still now Democrats really don't do what they should in the South. But if we build the right movement, we can change the South. That's really the only way you're gonna ultimately change the country. Because you cannot give people a 170 electoral vote head start in a race to 270 and then think you're gonna always be successful. You just can't do that anymore. So uh, that's exactly right. By the way, I started a couple of different groups, but including Rebellion Pack. And Rebellion Pack put money into Mississippi because we thought right. it actually was winnable. Uh, and 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 it turns out we were closer to right. But you need people to join the rebellion, right? right. And that's exactly what you guys are talking about. So Reverend Theodore Harris, that, that brings us to the Democrats. So today or on Tuesday, Donald Trump comes out and does a press conference and says, I'm gonna veto the COVID relief bill. It shouldn't be $600, it should be $2,000 in direct payments to the average American. 
Well, he just outflanked the, the Democrats uh, on populism. Um, why is this hard for Democrats? I mean, if you, 88% of Americans wanted a $1,200 check, uh, including 83% of Republicans. What is wrong with the Democratic Party that they can't do the simplest thing in the world and say, let's help the average American and let's hold the Republicans accountable? Well, I mean, what we say in our work, and, and this seems to be so true, is that Republicans racialize poverty and Democrats run from it, right? Um, in, in, you know, before even this pandemic hit, there were 140 million people, uh, poor white people, poor black people, poor Latino people, that were poor or one emergency, a storm, a fire, a healthcare crisis, a job loss. We have all of those going on right now, um, away from economic ruin. Um, and yet, the Democrats, the Republicans have not raised these issues in our public uh, discussion, discourse. Um, you know, everywhere that somebody in this past election in 2020 ran on healthcare for all, on Medicare for all, they won. Um, all the places where folks were talking about 15 in a union, uh, you know, that that beat. Um, uh, and, and so the the issue is how do we make sure that the issues that are the real life and death issues of Close to half of this population, and this is before this economic recession. This is before eight months of, of no stimulus. This is um, this is you know before actually all of this happens. Two hundred fifty thousand people in this country, the richest country in human history, dying every year from poverty and inequality. And and so we have yet to see enough leadership, um, but, but that is who turned out. And that's what we started to hear in this election, right? Uh, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris talked about 15 and a union. They talked about expanding healthcare. They talked about fair taxation. They talked about student debt relief. And, and where those issues were raised, people turned out in large numbers. We know that poor and low income people Voted um, in a way higher margin than even years ago. Um, 55% of poor and low income people voted for the Biden Harris ticket. Six million more than had voted, 40% more than had voted in, in the 2016 election. And so what we do know is that when Democrats, when politicians, when folks raise these issues that are the issues that are of concern to, to people, especially poor and low income people, that, that folks turn out. Um, and so, so our campaign is about shifting this narrative, getting this nation to pay attention to these real issues, these interlocking injustices of racism and poverty, ecological devastation, and, and this war economy where we spend 53 cents of every discretionary dollar on, on war. Um, and that doesn't go to our veterans, that doesn't go to our service people, and that goes to contractors mainly. Um, yeah. and, and very little on healthcare and education. So uh, you're right, except I, I Reverend Theoris, I really wish that, that Biden and, and Kamala Harris had talked way more about $15 minimum wage because then they might have won Florida. And not that anything would have made a difference. They already got 306 and he still won't leave. But uh, and the Republicans are still pretending he won the election. But uh, in, in Florida, Biden lost by three, minimum wage being increased to $15, won by 22. As a 25 point difference. If all they had done was talk about $15 minimum wage every time they went to Florida, they would have won Florida. That's a, it's a near guarantee. 
So Reverend Barber, let me go to that. That's in your 14 points, it's point number three. And it's arguably one of the easiest ones. Democrats claim that they're in favor of it. They passed it in the House already. So now if the Republicans hold the Senate, are you worried that Biden team is not going to push for it? They're just gonna say, well, McConnell's gonna block it, so we're just gonna drop it. Or do you think they'll push anyway? What would the what would that look like? And then if the Democrats don't pursue it, if the Republicans hold on to the Senate, then what can we do? Well, let me answer a series of questions, so let me try to answer them in, in, in that form. First of all, you're exactly right in terms of Democrats have to learn to run on what they believe and not just offer Republican light. Because if I'm wanting Coca-Cola and you offer me light, I'll take the real thing anytime. So Democrats need to say what they believe, and I agree with you on like 15 in Florida. You can't talk about it a little bit, you gotta talk about it. Then you have to talk about what it will do. How many black people will it lift out of poverty? How many white people will it lift out of poverty? How many people in Appalachia will it lift out of poverty if you do this? And that's one of the things we've been pushing the campaign on. Not only say you're for it, but disaggregate the numbers so that people can see themselves in the policy. The second thing is, you know, Democrats have to learn how to, to as I could say, hang in there. Now, today, it would be this. There would be three. There would be. This is the 17th day, I believe, of the anniversary of the Selma. Not excuse me, the Montgomery bus boycott. They would have another 364 days to go. Why am I bringing that up? Because what we've seen happen this week and this bill that they passed that really wasn't a bill. It wasn't a Christmas miracle. It was a Christmas mess. What if Democrats had said we're not moving on the 1200 at least? We're not moving. Uh, they could, you know, and stay there because they, the Republicans could not do it by themselves. You have one house, but you have to be willing to endure some suffering. And the people who are suffering really didn't didn't want just a little bit. They wanted the real thing. But the problem is sometimes Democrats get so caught up and they compromise before they fight too often, and then they get mad at you if you say that. But the reality is. People need to see a long-term fight, and they need to give the people time to get in the fight. So what do we do in the new year? We are gonna have to make sure whoever gets the Senate, that 15 in the union is not optional, just like free vaccines and just like sick leave and unemployment. But 15 in the union, the people are gonna have to stay engaged. And the Democrats, particularly those in the progressive caucus, are going to have to stay very strong in this. We're gonna to have to put a face before America. We, we, we can't just back up and we have to get out of this microwave policy victory stuff. Because none of the things we hold true today, like Social Security, even labor unions came quick and easy. And I think sometimes what politicians do is they just want something. I hear them talk about, uh, I remember when Democrats were bragging about the CARES Act and we were raising criticism, not saying that it was all bad, but they didn't even want to discuss the parts that were. They didn't even want to discuss the parts beforehand. It was as though, no, you can't, this is the best we can do. Well, when you go into a fight and you're already saying this is the best we can do, and your adversary knows that you're already going to compromise, then they're not even going to give you half of what you asked for because they already know you don't have your whole heart in that. We're in the middle of a recession, many people in the middle of depression. We have to fight in this new 
administration. And that's what we intend to do in the Poor People's Campaign. And we said that to the Biden team. We said, we want to be allies because we better have you than Trump. We want to be allies because you said some of the right things in the, in, the, in the election. But we also reserve the right to be critics because people are dying. And, and I wish my brother that sometimes on these shows, even with you and others would say, when they say 350 something, 300 something people have died, then they say black people are dying at three to seven times higher. Let's go one further. Poor and low wealth people are dying. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Whether they're black or white, poor and low wealth people are dying. And we're gonna have to start talking about, you know that's the one stat they don't keep right now? My daughter's in public health. Do you know they're not keeping a stat based on death and class? Yeah, yeah. So uh, as usual, I, I wanna end every one of your answers with preach it. Um, and so uh, look, uh, the Montgomery bus boycott is a devastating example. So thank you for bringing that up. I had not considered that as a good model to point to and I will going forward. Yeah, because 81 days, man, 381 right. days they fought. And if, we if they, can't fight in two weeks. Yeah, if they had said, hey, you know what? Uh, we could hold a boycott for just uh, 20 days. Well, right. then they would have waited 21 days and the boycott would have been over. Right. Uh, I mean, has anybody, has a Democrat ever played poker in their lives? If you tell somebody, hey, you know what? If you raise me more than $20, I'm gonna fold. They'll raise you $21, okay, so you fold. And and there was a compromise offered in the first couple of weeks in, a group of folk went and compromised. And listen, history tells us Martin King was willing to compromise. And Edie Nixon and Rosa Parks said, we didn't get out here just to be treated nice on the bus system. We came out here to change it, to tear down Jim Crow. And and Democrats and others are gonna have to decide what is it that is not compromisable? Because the people will suffer even more if we capitulate and compromise. Yeah, so I mean, it's Rosa Parks is another great example. You know, sometimes you just need to sit somewhere and go, I'm not moving. Right. Until this. Uh, until this system changes, I'm not moving. So now, Reverend Theo Harris, I want to go to you because now let's get to the, the 59 minimum wage should be a layup, but they, you know, I'd be surprised. Okay, even if they have the Senate, honestly, the I bet the conservative Democrats come in there and try to extend uh, how long it's going to be before we get to 15 dollars minimum wage, yeah. right? So we'll fight that when we get to it. But now you also have difficult things on this uh, 14. Uh, uh, points that you guys are asking the Biden administration to consider. So uh, number five is guarantee quality housing for all. So uh, that's a hard one. <laughs> so Reverend Theo Harris, what do we do with a hard one like that? Well, I mean, I think it's, it's a hard one in that right now we don't have the political will to end homelessness. But there's actually five abandoned houses for every homeless person in this country. So in that way, it's not a hard one. Um, and in that way, we have the wherewithal, we have the productivity, we have the capacity to end homelessness tomorrow. Yeah, we have the we have the housing stock there. We have a people living in the street. We have the necessity to do it, and we're going to have to push for everything we're saying. We're saying in the first 50 to 100 days, and some people say, "Well, that's a lot," but people are going through a lot. One more time, preach it. Uh, so uh, look, uh, there's no more room for excuses. So uh, now is the time, uh, we cannot take the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. And as Frederick Douglass said, 
power never concedes without a demand. So it's time for demands. And so um, one last thing. Can I, say one thing? I know we've got to wrap. This is the thing I want because it might make your audience cuss, but I won't cuss. Billionaires have made a trillion dollars since COVID. A trillion dollars since COVID. We just passed a bill. Let they tried to Trump is less than what billionaires have made during COVID. We don't need to hear any more excuses about what we don't have and what we can't do. What we we have to talk about what we must do if this country is going to be America. That's the question before us. Not can we do it, but can America even be? Hundred percent, Reverend Theo Harris. Just last quick thing: Where can people find out how to participate? You can go to poorpeoplescampaign.org, sign up. There's coordinating committees in 45 states across the country. You can sign up for our email, and and you can also check out both repairs of the breach and the Cairo Center because there's ways to get involved in a movement, a movement of of all kinds of people who are are saying. You know, no to poverty, no to war, no to racism, and and yes to life. Um, so please get involved. Yeah, and and for all of you out there watching, okay, as Reverend Barber said, it ain't the black people's movement, okay, or black and brown people's movement. It's a poor people's movement, okay, and and it's it's Tucker Carlson and and the right wing, they're they're lying to you. We're not going to make you drink Starbucks coffee. We're not going to do it just for our own ethnicities, okay? We're going to actually raise wages for everyone, for everyone. So come and help us. And so Poor People's Campaign is just an absolutely critical part of it. And you don't have to be poor to participate in the Poor People's Campaign. You could actually care about your fellow human beings. And that's exactly what reverends are supposed to do. So Reverend Barber and Reverend Theo Harris, thank you. Thank you, thank you for the work that you do. Thank you. Remember Oak Flats. Remote flat. Take care. You too. Thank you.